Acts chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, we'll be on page 1080. 1080. We return now to the <clears throat> narrative. The disciples, as we saw, were left gazing into heaven after the Lord Jesus ascended on a cloud back to heaven and appeared before them two men, two angels, to tell them, uh, why do you... What do you look into the clouds? This Jesus will return in the same way that he was taken up. And that is where we left off and where we will pick up our story today. And so I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Let's hear now God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and uh, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two ways you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots to them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. You remember what we started last week? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. And Lord, we do uh, say those words. Thanks be to God for your word. Um, We pray and ask, O God, that you would help in this hour Lord, that you would help me, the preacher, to say what I ought, to speak with clarity, to speak words that are true. Would you keep me from foolishness in this pulpit, from triviality in this pulpit? Would you anoint with spiritual power from heaven the preaching today? Um, Lord, I pray that you would anoint the ears of all of us as we listen today as well, that we 
be caught up in your word and that you speak to our hearts and our souls as we need today, that we would hear and receive your word, that we would obey your word, that we would believe it today. And so this time is committed to you, God, we pray and ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have now the apostles up in the upper room, and they are expectantly waiting upon the work of God. They were told to wait upon the Lord, right? To wait upon the promise of the Father. They've been told that they were to be baptized soon by the Holy Spirit. They were going to be clothed with power from on high. So they're trusting God's promises and, and, and acting in this room. We'll, we'll get to that in, in a moment, but they're not sitting on their hands, as it were. <clears throat> They've been given assurance from God that they will be witnesses and they're awaiting power from on high. They are trusting that God is soon to work in their midst. But we too have been given promises from our Lord. Amen? Well, we have, the, we have hindsight. We have 2,000 years of the church. But we too have been given that wonderful promise that Christ will build His church. We already saw that in the book of Acts as we looked ahead a bit, that the Lord Jesus added to their number those that were being saved. And so he has been building his church, not just in number alone, but in faith and strength and stature and power and wisdom and depth. And he will continue to fulfill that promise until he returns, until the sky is cracked open and Christ descends in glory. We have the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For a long time in my Christian walk, I pictured hell just mounting an assault on the church, and the church is sort of on the defense, and yes, we will prevail, but we are assaulted from all sides. But then I heard a few years ago the simple fact that gates do not move. And so it is the church that is assaulting the gates of hell, not the gates of hell assaulting the church. It is the stronger man, as we saw a couple of weeks back, that has come down, that is plundering Satan's house, that is recruiting the, the soldiers of darkness to be soldiers of light. And so we know as Christians that Satan cannot prevail against us. He is a defeated foe at the cross. Jesus accomplished that work. We have the assurance that the nations globally will be the inheritance of King Jesus. We have the assurance that the Lord of the harvest is the one that reaps souls from the white-hot harvest fields. They are his, it is His field and they are His souls to reap. We have the assurance that Christ has all authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And thus we are to be faithful in the making and in the equipping of Christian disciples. And so with these promises, beloved, with these expectations that Christ is working in our midst and will continue to faithfully work in our midst, what might it look like to live in expectation? What might it look like not to live presumptuously, but to expect God to be faithful as we ought to? Now, I said, a, I said in the first sermon that some texts describe things 
that happened, and some texts prescribe things that we ought to do. And I believe this is a descriptive text, but I believe we have much to glean and learn as we see these early saints faithfully seeking the Lord. So let's dive back into the text. Acts chapter 1. They returned from Jerusalem, or to, excuse me, to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet. They, we learn here that the ascension of Christ and the Great Commission took place on the Mount of Olives. Now, many believers, many Christians believe that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives when he returns. The text didn't say that here. It said that he will return in the same way, not to the same place. But there are texts in the Old Testament that speak of the day of judgment taking place on the Mount of Olives. They return back to the upper room. Is this the upper room where the Lord's Supper was instituted? The text is not definitive. Is this one of the rooms where Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection? The text is not definitive. And here we have this list of the apostles. Of course, there is one missing, Judas, who is already went to his demise. And we read in verse 14 that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I just want to make some observations from the text today that I think are helpful. And the first thing that stands out to me is that these saints are gathered together. They're gathered together. They've been promised from the Lord Jesus that they will be his witnesses, that they will be soon empowered for the work of ministry, and they don't just go back into their homes, but they're assembled as one body waiting upon God. What is the church but a gathering community? The church is a people that assemble together, right? If we look at the, the, the word that we translate into church, the word ecclesia or ecclesia, it simply means the assembly. Sometimes a religious assembly, a few times in the book of Acts, a riotous mob is called an ecclesia. But be that as it may, it is an assembly of people. And so the church, by definition, is the assemble, the, the assembling of God's people, the gathering of God's people. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the church is not actually being the church if it is not gathering together, if we are not seeing one another face to face. I think this says a lot about the whole idea of virtual church, of, of live streams. And God bless anyone that's on the live stream today. But I have scruples even with doing this live because it, it says that a live stream can be a substitute. And I want to be very clear that the live stream is no substitute to embodied worship. We learned this in COVID, and some people went the other direction, but I think many saw that we need to be together. That church is the body coming together, assembling together. And this is not unique here. It's the beginning. right? We'll see in the coming weeks as the Spirit is poured out and 3,000 souls are added to the number uh, the church explodes in one day, and they have a, a, a simple list of things that they focused on. The apostles' teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, and the fellowship. They committed themselves to one another. The text says they devoted themselves to these things. And then we read that they went from house to house throughout the week, breaking bread together, having fellowship together, 
enjoying the Lord together, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The church is a people that assemble. And I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm thankful for this body. Because we, we see each other a lot <laughs> throughout the week. Right? We, we spend the morning on the Lord's Day together. And many of us spend the evening on the Lord's Day together. And there's, there's something intimate about being in someone's living room. Right? That's hard to capture in a, in a setting like this. Something a little bit more personal. Something vulnerable when people have to come in to your house and see that you're actually not perfect. And that's a good thing. Right? We can let loose a little bit as we, as we gather in that fashion. Uh, I, I'm encouraged at the, at the turnout recently on Wednesday nights here as we've moved from a house back to the church. Um, I'm encouraged to see the ladies every other Saturday sacrificing the many other things you could do on a Saturday night to have fellowship with one another, to be encouraged. I'm encouraged to see the men gathering now every Thursday morning, bright and early, with cobwebs in our eyes and all of that good stuff, um, but seeking the Lord in prayer. If we think about the church as the assembly, as the gathering, really almost all of the benefits of the church come in the gathered assembly. The main thing that I could think of that is a benefit outside of the gathering is prayer. Now, prayer is no small, insignificant thing. But most of the blessings that we receive come when we are together. As we are called to exhort one another, to admonish one another, to serve and love one another. This happens face to face. We're called to be gentle with one another, to be patient with one another, to confess our sin to one another, to greet with a holy kiss and I'm happy with a hug or a handshake. Um, we're, we're called to bear one another's burdens, to forgive, to teach, to disciple. These happen when we gather. Right? These happen as the church comes together. And when we fail, when we fail to assemble, when we keep ourselves from gathering, not only do we disobey Scripture, but we miss out on God's plan of discipleship. We miss out on the central means that God uses to mature and grow Christians. I think the more we understand providence, helpful doctrine in my opinion, and the more we see God in control of everything, the more we see God orchestrating not just major events like the cross, but the minute details of our lives. God has providentially brought us together as a body. That means there are people here that have strengths that you don't have, that you need, that you need to see, that you need to glean from, that you need to be challenged by. There are people here that have weaknesses that you don't have, that you have something to offer and to help them. Have you ever thought about this? You've been providentially brought into this church to have conflicts with people so that you're weaknesses and immaturities and areas that you need to grow can be challenged and exposed. That's a good thing, right? If I'm at home on the couch week in and week out, those are never going to really be brought out. They can be covered up. But as we ruffle one another's feathers, we, 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 we grow, and it's a good thing. The gathering of ourselves is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian Church, and, I, and, I, and I, this is me talking here, 
But I do believe that until this becomes an unquestioned commitment that I will worship with the saints on God's day, that we will be slow to grow, slow to love, that there will be many benefits that come that Christ has for us that will not be developed if we just simply worship in the privacy of our homes. And so we see from the beginning the church is gathered together. They come together. Secondly, they are united in purpose. They're united in purpose. All of these gathered with one accord. NASB says they came with one mind or they were continually united together. In the text, some translations lean towards the they came together often, but I believe the language is stronger than that. They have one mind, one accord. They're united. Uh, there's a, a sort of mutual consent and agreement that they have. Uh, they're unanimously, if you will, coming together in purpose. There's a beautiful unity we see here within the body of believers. They have the mind of Christ, and their goal together is to discern the will of Christ for the church. Now, don't let me be naive and as if there's no division in the book of Acts. Right? We'll eventually see Paul and Barnabas part ways sharply over a disagreement and then, praise God, reconcile and minister once again together and see John Mark, who was the reason for the split, be restored. But there seems to be a, a real sincere desire here for the common good, for the purpose of the whole instead of the individual. Isn't it sad, but true, that sin and pride and personalities so often spoil a good thing? So often one person's sin, one person's desires, one person's weaknesses or um, selfishness can really bring disunity, disharmony into a body. I, I think part of this is because we have turned the church today into a product that is to be consumed. Churches are desiring people to come into their number. That's a good desire to have. And so we've produced a church for every personality, a church for every taste, a church for every demographic, trying to serve the appetites of people, the, the, the hobby, uh, the sort of trends of people. We, we do traditional worship in the morning and contemporary in the late morning and radical worship in the evening. To me, it feels me-driven. That the gathering is not primarily about the worship of God and the pursuit of the will of God, but the church is a product that I consume, that I want to fit my various tastes. And when it doesn't meet my needs as I see them, then I'm gone down the road to go somewhere else. But as we look at these saints here in the beginning, they have gathered with one accord. There is a one-mindedness, if you will, within these believers. I think Philippians 2 is a wonderful text to turn to, to think of this charge that we have to be humble. A charge for humility, not to say that we are humble, but to live sacrificially. Paul says in Philippians 2.2, 2, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition 
or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now how did he empty himself? Did he cease to be God? Did, did, he, did he for a time not have his divine attributes? That's, I don't think that's possible for God. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself as he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. As he assumed to himself a human nature, he took on weakness and the frailty of a human body. He took on pain and suffering and what it means to be hungry and tired and thirst and grieve and sweat and toil. And Paul says to us and to the Philippians, look to Jesus. Look at the humility of our Lord. Look at the humiliation that he went through. Look at his suffering. Look at his death. Look at him on a cross giving himself for murderers, for liars, and for thieves. And he says, have this mind among yourselves. Esteem others as higher than yourselves. Is there any better example of humility than Christ pinned to a cross, bleeding out for his own enemies? We seem to have lost some of this mindset in in the church where we've become like the world, that we're self-focused and me-driven and self-centered. Too often we can make it about us. But we see here early on the church is together with one mind in one accord asking the question, what does God desire to do in our midst? And so they're gathered together. They're united in purpose. And thirdly, they're devoted to prayer. They are devoted to prayer. They're gathered with one accord, Acts 1.14, devoting themselves to Prayer. What is prayer? It's one of these things we just do. We talk to God, right? That's, that's what prayer is. I like the um, definition given in the Baptist Catechism. It says that prayer is an offering up our desires to God. But we don't do it alone. By the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Right? We need the Spirit to help us to speak to the Lord, for things agreeable to His will. Certainly we don't pray for things that oppose God's will. In the name of Christ, and I love this part, believing. Believing. What is prayer if it's not done in faith? What, what is prayer if it's not done believing? We might have weak faith, but what is prayer if we don't believe that God will actually do what we ask? with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. God's people offering up our desires to God. And we see the disciples here devoted to do this very thing. Devoted to call upon the name of the Lord. Thomas Watson says that prayer is not the tuning the voice into a heartless confession. It's not just external things that we do where we sound very solemn. It's not counting over a few prayer beads. He 
He says it consists in sighs and groans. When the fire of fervency is put to the incense of prayer, then it ascends as a sweet fragrance to God. I heard a story this week of some men that were seeking God's blessing of rain. They had a field, they were wanting to grow their crops, and they would get up every morning and they would go out to the field and they would pray to God that he would bring the rain. And a man walked by and he says, what is all this you guys are doing out here? And they told him, we're, we're praying that God would give us rain, we, we're, we have these crops. And he said, well, it appears to me that you have no faith. You don't actually believe that God's going to answer your prayer. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, where's the umbrellas? Where's the umbrellas? Is God actually going to bring rain? Are you really believing? No, it's a, a silly story, but it, it shows the point. Right? That we pray believing. And so the disciples, I think this is worth pointing out, the disciples have been promised that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. That they are about to be clothed with power from on high. They're not instructed to pray at all, but pray they must. Pray they must. As they wait upon God expectantly, they join together with one mind, discerning the will of God, that they might be led in such a way as one that their works and their witness would be pleasing to the Lord. As Luther said, it's been said recently, I have so much to do today, I must pray for an extra two hours. It seems backwards for us. But we, we hear something of the dependence that we have on prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. Amen? It is how we become empowered. It is how we commune with God. How we concern ourselves with our sovereign Lord. How we cast our cares, the cares of this world, upon the one that cares for us. Was not our Lord devoted to prayer? I've always been convicted and challenge if the second person of the Trinity in his human nature felt the need to pray as he did. How much more? Me? A weak man? Hebrews says that in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. How often do we see the Lord separating himself from the twelve and even from the three, Peter, James, and John, and going off to pray to his father, leaving the crowds, getting up early in the morning before anyone else was up to go off to, to pray, praying through the night watch. I've always been struck by the fact that when Jesus, now I know that the text says that Jesus knew who would believe and who it was that would betray him. He had that information, right? He had that knowledge. But even still, when he was to choose the twelve, to set twelve apart for the work of the ministry, it says he went all night to pray to his father. That's, that, that's convicting for, for me. How, how, how much do we set a time aside to pray when we make big decisions as a family, as a church? Jesus set out all night to pray for those twelve, to seek the face of His Father. Not only was Jesus devoted to prayer, we see the disciples throughout the book of Acts devoted to prayer. We see Paul exhorting the church to pray without ceasing. 
In Acts 4, when, the, when Peter is first arrested and they are released and they've been charged not to preach in the name of Jesus, the first thing they do is come together as a body, O Sovereign Lord, and they call upon God. They devote themselves to prayer. Many things we could say about prayer. Prayer is an act of faith. It is something we, we do believing that God is going to act, that God is bringing us in in some mysterious way to His plan and to His works. Prayer is an act of expectation. right? Lord willing, when we pray, we pray expecting something to happen, that our prayers mean something, they're meaningful, whether they're just God joining us in harmony with His will. And prayer is an act of reliance. Prayer is a testimony of our need and our dependence and our humility. And I want to encourage you folks at First Baptist, um, if after the Spirit was promised and the church was to be empowered, they still, expecting the work of God, set out, devoted to pray, I want to ask you to pray for your church. Now, I know most of you, if not all of you, already do. But I want to ask you to pray. This isn't a, a selfish thing where we pray for our little kingdom against everyone else. We, we ought to pray for all the churches around us and across the world. But God has brought us here. And so I ask you to pray for the ministry of the Word, that it be effective, that it be powerful, that it be transformative, that we be shaped by God's Word. I selfishly ask you to pray for your pastor, that he be a godly man, that he have wisdom to seek God's face. I encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters that this truly would be a school of Christ where Christians are formed and discipled and shaped and built up to be servants in this world. And so we see from the beginning, they gather together. They're of one mind, one purpose. They're devoted to prayer. And fourthly, they are committed to the word. Committed to the word. Read with me now in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted with his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So the Spirit of God is being poured out, is about to be poured out. They're going to be clothed with supernatural power. And what does Peter do? But he turns to the Word to answer their questions. He turns to the Word that they might have guidance and wisdom to press forward. Notice a few things about Peter's convictions about God's Word that I think are important. The first one is in verse 20. Peter believes that these events have been foretold in God's word. He believes that God has spoken about these things beforehand. Because what does he do here? In verse 20, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms. 
Judas has defected. Judas has, has died. Now, some have seen an apparent contradiction here in the text or tried to point out a contradiction to say, well, Judas was hung himself. And why here do we read of his bowels being burst open? I don't think we need to see a contradiction in, in the word. Um, likely, he was hung for a time and the body went through the processes that happen when a body is decomposing and either he was cut down or the rope broke and he fell and as his... You understand. <laughs> and so Peter says that these things have been foretold. It is written in the book of Psalms. He, he quotes two texts. The first text is Psalm 69.25. Now this psalm is a psalm of David. It is a psalm where we see the righteous sufferer, David, pleading his cause before God. His enemies, who in this psalm are seen as the enemies of God, have come against him, and he desires the vindication of, of the Lord. This text is often seen as messianic. David, seen as a type of Christ here, the true righteous sufferer. The enemies of David, a type of the enemies of God and Christ. This text is quoted in, twice in John and twice in Romans as well. And so Peter believes this to be a foretelling of these events. He also quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, another psalm of David. And again, this is a lament that David's enemies have unjustly come against him. And in this text, he is calling curses upon his enemy. And he, and he says just before the actual quoted verse, he is asking that his enemy's days be cut short and that he lose his office or lose his position. And we see Judas's days were cut short by his own hand and his office is taken by another. His position is taken. So Peter sees these texts as having their ultimate fulfillment in Christ and in Judas as the enemy of God. Secondly, he says, as he's committed to the word, he says, it had to be fulfilled. Did you see that in verse 16? It had to be fulfilled. Peter has a high view of God's word. If God said it, it will happen. Amen? Amen? That's what we believe, right? If God has spoken it, it will come to pass. And because God has spoken of these things in His Word, Peter says it had to come to pass. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. If God has spoken it, it is sure and certain. And thirdly, we have one of the clearest examples of the inspiration of the Bible, that the Bible is theonistal, breathed out by God. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. David spoke and David wrote, but David spoke and David wrote the words of God. David is speaking of his own struggles. He is speaking of his own battles. He is speaking of his own enemies. But as he puts pen to paper, the Holy Spirit is superintending his words. And he speaks of things that would find fulfillment as well in the Christ and in this rebellious man, Judas. And so they're, as they're there expecting God to work, they are still dependent upon the word, committed to the word, searching the word 
for answers. And we will see as we get into their preaching that they do this often. They're going back to the Old Testament and preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And quite simply as well, beloved, we must depend on God's word. And we have questions as a church, like what is, what is the mission of the church? What should we be doing? Who is to lead the church? And what are the leaders to do? What are they to teach? How are we to live? How are we to train up the next generation? What should our witness look like, be contained to a perishing world? How does God desire to be worshipped? Right? These questions and many more are answered in God's word. And if we don't have the word and don't seek the word for the answers of such questions, we will certainly be misled. And so as they expect God's continued faithful working, they've gathered together, they're united in purpose, devoted to prayer, committed to the word, and finally, humbly dependent upon the Lord. Humbly dependent upon the Lord. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We read in Proverbs that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from, is from the Lord. So what is, a, what is the lot it's, it's, the mo- it's the most random thing that we can do, right? It's like flipping a coin or rolling a dice. Now, I don't think that we today ought to take up the practice necessarily of casting lots. I think it would be presumptuous to say, Lord, if, am I going to marry her, red or blue, roll the dice, and I'm leaving it up to you, God, because God has not told us to do that, right? He hasn't instructed us to seek Him that way. But in the Old Testament, this was common practice. They would cast lots. It was a way of depending upon God, of letting him be the deciding factor. They did this often. It would be a couple rocks or something with a man's name and the lots are cast and wherever the lot falls, that's the answer, right? God is chosen. And and notice how dependent they are on the Lord. I love this. So Jesus told them in Luke 24 that the scripture had to be fulfilled, that the Christ would suffer, die, raise on the third day, and that repentance would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And he told the disciples, and you will be my witnesses because you have witnessed these things. You have seen them. And so they took that criteria and said, it must be someone who has been with us all along. And there were only two candidates that they saw that met those qualifications. But notice what they say as they pray to God in verse 24. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. It's not us deciding, it's not our will, it's not our great insight, but we know that you've chosen one of these, and they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and they humbly trusted the Lord, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. 
Now, you may have heard someone say that this was wrong. They shouldn't have done this, that Paul's the 12th apostle. Some people say that. Um, and they say that because you never see Matthias mentioned again in all of the New Testament. But you actually only see from this point on Peter, James, and John mentioned in the whole book of Acts. They're the only apostles that are mentioned of the 12. And interestingly, this is just an, a little addition. This is the last time we see the mention of Mary as well. Is here in this room. We never hear the name of Mary again in this book. And so they're humbly dependent upon the Lord. They trust God with the decision. And then here they are now waiting for the Spirit to be poured out. That's next week. So how can we remain faithful, beloved? As we as a church expectantly anticipate God's continued work in our midst, we have promises that are dear to us, that we're clinging to and trusting in. He builds His church. He's given us strength to be His witnesses. How do we remain faithful? Number one, we faithfully gather together. We faithfully gather together. We take the call seriously to make disciples. And we understand that a disciple is made over a lifetime. It is not a six-week or a 12-week or a two-year or a five-year process, but all of us are, Lord willing, moving from one degree of glory to another. And we understand that a disciple is largely shaped through the weekly rhythms of the church, specifically on the Lord's Day Sabbath. So as the church comes together, Christians are formed, we are challenged, shaped, exhorted, and then we take what we learn and what we study throughout the week, and we apply it to our lives, and we teach it to our families, and we take it to our workplace, we take it to the public square. Secondly, we stay united in purpose. We stay united in purpose. God has given us our marching orders, amen? We know what they are. We don't need to guess. We don't need to come up with new fancy ideas or new programs. God has called true worshipers to worship the Father in spirit and truth, and to be His witnesses wherever it is that He has planted us. It's very easy, I think, for churches to be personality-driven, program-driven. We have the path forward. We have the, we have the blueprint that God has given us. Thirdly, we devote ourselves to prayer. Devote ourselves to prayer. A church that prays little will have little impact for the cause of Christ. I believe that to be true. Prayer is our lifeblood, and prayer also is a barometer, and it can, it can measure our trust and our dependence upon the Lord. Uh, little prayer may expose the fact that we're not really relying upon God. We're, we're trusting in our own selves, what we can do. But a church that is mighty in prayer is a church that will be mighty in the Spirit and mighty in power. Fourthly, we stay committed to the Word. Stay committed to the Word. If we trust that God will continue to work in our midst, as I, I believe that we do, right, then the Word must be central. The Word must be central. If we want to see conversions, if we want to see healthy, a healthier church, healthier Christians, growing disciples, spiritual power, it needs to be Word-centered, Word-saturated, Word-driven and word focused. And lastly, let us humbly depend upon the Lord. Let us humbly depend upon the Lord. The Lord is our strength. Amen. The Lord is our strength. The Spirit is the Spirit of God is our need. 
Not more programs, not more fun, not more charismatic personalities, but more trust in the sovereign operation of the Spirit of God. More dependence upon Him in all things. More humility before Him. More reliance upon the only one that can raise the dead to new spiritual life. God is at work in our midst, beloved. It is pride and self and sin that will hinder this work. And it is prayer and unity and devotion and humility that the Lord desires in His church. Amen. Let's pray.